Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors. RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and more, all for free. And Studio Services Bookkeeping, a division of Charette Venture Group providing concierge remote bookkeeping services for small firm architect. Lee Skolnick, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here, Lee. Uh, Lee Skolnick, FAIA, uh, seeks to synthesize art, science, and architecture to create memorable and meaningful experiences. He unlocks each project motiv uh, motivating story to inspire imagination, curiosity, and understanding. For over 35 years, Lee has uh, passionately developed and pursued his philosophy of design as interpretation, wherein he seeks to unearth the unique themes and compelling concepts which characterize each project and to translate them into concrete expression. Breaking down the barriers between disciplines, Mr. Skolnick uh, has created an extraordinary firm where more than 30 designers and educators work in close collaboration. By making a thorough ex exploration and translation of content the starting point for design, he has brought depth, authenticity, and vision to an enormous array of diverse projects around the world. His museum 
cultural institutions and residential projects have been recognized as works of fresh innovation and inspiration. Uh, very interesting uh, portfolio of work. And he has a new book called Skolnick Architecture and Design Partnership, Public, Private, uh, presents its first monograph the, from the award-winning New York-based architectural firm uh, covering nearly 40 years of work. The book exhibits uh, projects in both public and private sectors. And I want to talk about the book, Lee. I want to talk about your firm. I'd love to talk about your process. I love your architecture. I love the, the, the style of it. I love the feel of it. I love the way it presents. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about how you get there. I also want to talk about you know how you built the firm, right? Because that's something we have. We're talking to an audience of of small firm architects. Many of them are small firms because they want to be small firms, and many others are small firms because they're just starting, and they want to build a big firm like yours. Yeah. Right. Well, so medium sized. Yeah, medium sized <laughs> firm. Yeah, um, well, so I'd love to talk about that process. Before we get too deep into this episode, let's say thank you to our platform sponsors, RCAT and Studio Services Bookkeeping. I'm hearing it more and more among the Entree Architect community. Your workload is piling up. With project conditions changing and limited time to get things done, it's good to have information right there at your fingertips. RCAT.com provides architects, engineers, spec writers, and contractors with the most comprehensive libraries of building product content. And it's designed so you can access it quickly and efficiently. Even better, rcat.com is free. It's free to use and requires no registration. So visit today at rcat.com and access the information you need now. That's rcat.com, A-R-C-A-T.com. Studio Services Bookkeeping. A division of Charette Venture Group provides concierge remote bookkeeping services to small firm architects. Liberate yourself from bookkeeping tasks by outsourcing to trusted professionals who understand the nuances of your industry and your firm size. You can maintain control of your finances without doing all bookkeeping tasks yourself. Studio Services Bookkeeping goes beyond traditional bookkeeping to help you manage cash flow analyze project profitability, handle invoicing, and streamline your financial systems. Learn how to start outsourcing your bookkeeping today at ss-bookkeeping.com slash entrearchitect. That's ss-bookkeeping.com slash entrearchitect. And mention entrearchitect to get five hours of free bookkeeping with a six-month contract. That's ss-bookkeeping.com slash entrearchitect. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. I want to know how you started. Where did you start? Uh, and share the journey from that point to where you find yourself today. Sure, I'd be happy to start there. Um, well, I didn't set out to be an architect. You know, these, these stories about kids who played with blocks and knew they, they wanted to build the world. I mean, I played with blocks like everybody else and I drew and I, you know, I was, I, I was artistic, let's say, you know, I, I like to draw things like that, but um, it never occurred to me to uh, 
pursue architecture as as a kind of young kid or or even a teenager. In fact, I, I was <laughs> I was really most concentrated on uh, music as a teenager. I, I uh, was inspired by all the singer songwriters who were uh, on the airwaves, and I took up the guitar and then the piano and worked. Uh, I played in a million bands. I wrote music for commercials. I worked in recording studios all before I was, you know, 18. Oh, wow. And, and so uh, that, so that was your dream. Music was your dream. Was that your music focus? was, was my dream. I mean, you know, my dream was to be one of the Beatles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if I had to, if I had to pick one dream, but I was a little late for that, but I was so um, convinced that music was my career path that I went, to an undergraduate school in upstate New York, Hamilton College, as a music theory and composition major. And I was pursuing that, but a funny thing happened along the way. (laughs) (laughs) And that is that like every good liberal arts school, they had a, a vast array of courses in all sorts of different disciplines. So, you know, I was taking anthropology, I was taking physics, I was taking French cinema, I was taking English literature, I was taking sociology, psychology, etc. And I, I had really what I, I now refer to as an existential crisis, <laughs> because the, the way it worked is, you know, on a Tuesday morning, I would take a physics course, and I would walk out of that class saying, I want to be a research scientist. I'm passionate about that. And yeah. then Wednesday afternoon, I would take an anthropology course and I would say to myself, oh God, I've got to go to Papua New Guinea and study the indigenous tribes. And then on a Thursday evening, I'd be watching French cinema and be saying, wow, wouldn't it be incredible to be a director? And I, I really started to wonder, would I ever be able to make up my mind? Because I found all these things to be so fascinating. And then, you know, the, the, the serendipity stepped in and I took a, an elective course in architectural theory and, um, and history from the beginning, you know, from Vitruvius, at least the Western civilization beginning Vitruvius, Alberti, Palladio, all the way up through to uh, the modernists. And what I learned, particularly from the ancient philosophers, was that to be a good architect, you needed to be a student of everything. You needed to be a scientist, a politician, an artist, a theorist, you know, essentially the ultimate humanist. And that you needed to constantly spend your life learning more about all these things and integrating them into your work. And only by doing that would you be a real architect, you know, honest to goodness, uh, you know, almost Renaissance person. And so it was the proverbial bolt of lightning, you know, that hit me. Yeah. And uh, I was, I guess I was a junior, my early part of my junior year. And I finished out my junior year and I, Uh, applied to the academic standards committee at Hamilton College to allow me to do a pre-architecture major. So they did not not have architecture? 
No, they just had history of architecture yep. and that sort of thing. And there was no architecture program. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to go and get a professional degree in architecture eventually. So can I create my own pre-architecture major program, you know, with science, uh, physics and calculus and history and studio art? And I put together the, this very comprehensive curriculum. And they said, well, that's very interesting, but no. <laughs> and I said, well, that's very interesting. I'm leaving. Yeah, goodbye. <laughs> so <laughs> one of my professors um, had a friend who had an architecture practice in Brookline, Massachusetts. And so I went there, you know, with my, my hand in my hand. And I said, you know, will you hire me? And they said, well, we'll hire you, but we won't pay you. So I started out making blueprints in a, in a closet, asphyxiating myself, you know, from 8.30 in the morning till 5.30 at night. I would, you know, at the time, unlike the, my, my personal style now, you know, I, I, I wore a tweed jacket, a vest, you know, a striped shirt, a bow tie. You know, I was trying to be the, the architect's architect. That's yeah. what I thought architects looked like. And I did whatever they asked me to do. And by the end of the, the, the year, um, they had me designing buildings and paying me. And I went to the Boston Architectural Center at night. So, I mean, this was, you know, architecture 24 seven. Yeah. And along the way, I realized that, uh, you know, I needed to think about where was I gonna go to get my architecture degree. And it was a very funny kind of, story. I was, I had decided that I was going to go out to Arco Santi in, uh, in Arizona and work on this utopian city that this architect and poet, um, Paolo Soleri was building. And so before I left, I applied to Cooper Union and thought, well, if I wind up back, <laughs> back in New York after the summer, I'll go there not knowing that it was impossible to get into Cooper Union. <laughs> I had no idea at the time, this was in the 70s, that this was kind of the epicenter of, of the architecture world. Why, why did you choose Cooper? It was free. Okay. <laughs> and so did you, did, you, did, you, um, did you graduate with an undergrad at BAC? I never did. I just took uh, I just, just took courses. Took just courses to get to get the education. Right, and and you know I I had a year of apprenticeship, mm -hmm. even though I, it was b before having a degree. I, I sort of pieced things together, but uh, I wound up back in New York that fall. Um, I was not surprised that I got into Cooper Union until I found out <laughs> how incredibly intelligent and talented all the other people were. And I couldn't, then I couldn't believe that I had gotten in, but I got in somehow and I spent four years there and got my degree in it. It literally changed my life. I mean, the education, this was under John Haydick at the time, who was a, you know, a larger than life mentor, uh, poet, philosopher, architect, and uh, I got an incredible education. And so when I, when I got out, I had put together a bunch of apprenticeships. I, you know, I worked for professors while I was in school. And so I just took the exam and passed the exam and went into practice. I never worked for anyone else. So you took, you took the exam right out of school after, yeah, be, after be, working? I took hitting? both parts. At that time, there was the, 
the, you know, the part you took as soon as you graduated and then the part you took after you did your apprenticeship. But I took them in succession because I had accumulated a bunch of apprenticeship time. Yeah. And so I graduated in 79 and I really opened my office, which means just me, um, in 1980. How old were you when you, when you licensed? So I would have been uh, 26. So very early. Yeah, it was, it was very early. And, uh, and, you know, like a lot of young architects, I tapped family and friends for little projects. You know, if, if you needed your bathroom done, I would know not only design it, I'd build it for you. <laughs> and, you were, and you were based in New York at that time? I was in New York, but, but another kind of a serendipitous thing along the way is, you know, when I was doing my thesis at Cooper, which is a, a incredibly draining experience. I'm sure all of your listeners are familiar with it. Um, insanely, I also took on a project um, for my father to build an addition to a factory. So I was doing my thesis and designing this 40,000 square foot addition to this <laughs> factory. And I was, you know, my, my, my friends, my colleagues were saying, Lee, you know, you're not going to last, you know, you're, you're just going to, you're going to burn out. You're going to find yourself, you know, collapsing on the street someday. You've got to find some way to, to get a little bit of, of downtime. And I said, well, I don't have any money. <laughs> you know, what, what am I going to do? And one of my friends said, you need to rent a little house somewhere in the country and spend some time. You know, you can work from there, but, um, you just need to get some fresh air. And so I came out to this, to the Hamptons. Now everybody knows the Hamptons as, as this posh upscale place. And, and I, even though I grew up in Queens, I had no experience with it other than knowing it was out there somewhere. So this was 19, actually, this was before I graduated. This was in 1978. And I, I wound up uh, going to a realtor in this town called Bridgehampton because it was quote unquote undiscovered. <laughs> and so I went to the realtor and I said, you know, I, look, I just need, all I need is a bedroom and a, a kitchen. And she said, well, how much money do you have to spend? And I said, well, you know, I can probably pull together maybe $600 for the summer. <laughs> and she said, what? $600? Even Bridgehampton at that time, that was ludicrous. She said, you know, there's a little town four miles north of here called Sag Harbor. And it really has not been discovered. This was 78. Yeah. She said, I, I, I think you should go over there and see if you could find something. And I went to a realtor and they found me a four room cottage that was built in 1752. And it was attached to a larger house, but it was a separate little residence. And I rented it for a very little amount of money. And the realtors became friends of mine and they started getting me work. <laughs> I mean, work as, as in you would call me and say, I want a deck on the back of my house. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so I started getting these little, little projects at the same time, another stroke of serendipity, a friend, I won't go into the, all the machinations, but basically someone who is acquainted with a girlfriend I had at the time, was the director of the Staten Island Children's Museum. 
And she recommended me to her program director and said, well, you know, I have this friend, he's an architect and uh, we need to design an exhibit for kids on the uh, history of Staten Island. And she called me up and she said, would you be interested? And in my mind, I said two things. No, number one was, of course, I'm going to say yes. Number two is, I didn't even know people designed exhibits. I never thought about it before. But what came out of my mouth was yes. And so I got this gig to design an interactive exhibit for kids on Staten Island history. And at the same time, I was doing the decks out in Sag Harbor. And that actually became, I mean, I'm going through this because that became a duality which to this day, 40 years later, continues in our practice. And, you know, the message to your listeners is if somebody offers you something, take it. Because you never know where it's going to lead. And one of the things that was honestly in the back of my mind, even at that time, was I wonder if I get into the museum through the side door by designing exhibits, if maybe before I'm 70 years old, I'll get to design museums the whole museum which is you know the the plum commission for so many architects is to design whole museums and it happened i mean not immediately but i worked my way you know through a bunch of museums and then by the time i was uh maybe 40 i was designing whole museums the entire new building and all the exhibits and which we still do to this day um you know 25 years later so when you when you did that when you've got that first uh, exhibit to design and you enjoyed it and you saw that opportunity and maybe this could someday lead to a full design of a museum. Mm-hmm. Did you consciously sort of plan out a strategy for that or was it just, let's just keep doing museums. We'll just do the next one that comes along because now I have experience with this one. I'll get the next one. Was well, it, you know, was it incremental know. or was it more strategic? I'd, I'd love to say it was strategic, but it was really, um, synergy you know think one thing leads to another you know i can plot on the fingers of my you know two hands the turning points in my career when something clicked one thing led to another one interesting thing a phenomenon associated with the cultural work the museum work in particular is that the same people who are on the boards of museums own big companies and want very high-end residential right projects and that's what happened one you know there was this cross fertilization where my residential work was gaining some more uh, recognition and the museum work was and then they cross fertilized so that the people who I was meeting in the cultural world were also in this high-end residential world and again you know having uh, camped out in in the Hamptons which I've never left. I mean, I, I'm still in the city, but, you know, I've, we've been through four houses now out here and we have a thriving practice in very high-end residential work out in the Hamptons, which is a nice place to be. And that and that all led, that, that all came from that first project. So you were in that in that cottage, you were doing decks, you had a friend, the friend referred you to this museum exhibit project mm-hmm. and it all... That was the seed. And, was the, and yeah, and the, the realtor out here introduced me to their residential clients. You know, they were selling people land or they were selling the houses that needed to be renovated or added to. 
And, you know, it's, I mean, I, I could, if I ever had the time and inclination, I could plot out the entire right. kind of. That's what uh, I'm seeing, yeah. Because it's very clear. And and one of the things that happened out here, I'm, I'm in Sag Harbor right now uh, speaking with you. One of the things that happened was that um, they convinced me, even though I had no money, to buy a little house. And it was uh, a, the realtor. I, the realtor convinced you. The to do realtor. That? Well, they would. They were show. They were always taking me out on field trips. Yeah. To look at property and just you know get acquainted, and, and they showed me this um, fisherman's cottage, right across from the the um, harbor in Sag Harbor, hmm. on an oversized lot, where uh, someone the the old fisherman had passed away. Um, it was on the market. I, I wound up buying it for $78,000, oh which, which I borrowed, of course. And I got the smell of the fish out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and and I did about $15,000 worth of, you know, renovation work to make it a little more attractive. And then I put it back on the market. And I sold it very quickly for $115,000. And I thought yeah. I was a real estate genius. <laughs> yeah. But that wasn't the important part. The important part, it was bought by a very accomplished and prominent artist. And she bought it to renovate it and add it and add to it. And I got the commission to do that. Yeah. And that placed me in the art world, the high end art world. Right. And so that, you know, that led to another artist hiring me, which led to collectors hiring me, which led to museum people hiring me which led to then just wealthy people who enjoy culture. And so again, you know, like I say, I could plot this on a graph, Yeah. you know, how one break and that's what it takes. Um, you know, it's, it's a, some decision-making and some just being very open to what's going on here. What are the possibilities? This, there may be more here than, than is just on the surface. And so at a certain point, yeah, I mean, I did develop a strategy, but it was based on responding to things that that happened naturally. It wasn't yeah. based on, you know, I'm going to get off the boat, you know, from Europe and and pound the pavement. And, you know, it was it was a different kind of trajectory. Yeah. The 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 seeds that you plant there, did you and you and they turned into these things and you say you can plot this 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 origin story. Were there things that you were doing, looking back, that were cultivating those relationships? So you were meeting these people. These people were going to eventually lead to these projects. Was there anything that you were doing, either intentionally or looking back unintentionally, that, that helped you go from the connection to the commission? I think it's, it's a very natural thing. You know, I enjoy people. So, you know, and I think it comes across. So I'm not looking at someone uh, as a paycheck. I'm not looking at someone as, you know, what can I get out of them? I'm appreciating the relationship that we're, that we're developing. And I think that comes across. And, you know, I also, you know, one of the things that my artist clients have said to their artist friends when they're recommending me they're saying, you know, the thing about Lee that I find really unusual is he lets you draw on his drawings. <laughs> you know, he's, he, you know, I'm not so 
They're not precious. They're not. They're, you know, it's it's the it's the dialogue, and the digging down into the the motivating forces for a project that keeps me going. So it's not about me coming in and saying, okay, I you know I'm the architect in my my black T-shirt and my core of glasses, and I'm going to tell you what the hell you should have. I don't do that. I'm not interested in that. I'm honestly not interested. I'm interested in what they bring to the table that I can use to then, you know, be an inspiration for the design. And I think that's what comes across that. And when you go through the book, you know, you, you'll see that um, every project is very different. We don't, we don't have a, a definable style because yeah. when we approach a project, we, we, we say that our, our process is listen, learn, distill, create. And I give them all equal weight. So we don't start designing until we feel like we really understand every aspect of the situation and what is at its kind of essence. And once you do that, you establish a design direction. But you don't just jump in. I'm not the kind of architect who, you know, waves my hand at the first meeting and says, here's my concept, you know, take it or leave it. I mean, I find that really antithetical to what an architect should should be. Yeah. And so I, I think I think it's it's honesty, you know, it's 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 really believing what you're talking about and and living it and not trying to to sell something that isn't really there. It it sounds like much of back then and what you're just describing now through your process of architecture is that you are intentionally developing a relationship. Right? You're listening, you're mm -hmm. hearing. You're not trying to promote what you think. You're learning from them first. And that it sounds like that's what happened back then as well. People were, you were making these connections, but you were building a relationship, which then led to those referrals. Um, it sounds like the architecture today is very much the same way. You're listening to those clients, understanding what they, uh, what they do, understanding them as people first before the project, and then, and then moving from that point forward. Is that accurate? I think that's very accurate. And, you know, what substantiates that is a lot of those early clients are still my clients now. Right. Yep. I mean, we've done three, four, five, six projects for these people, for their kids, you know, for their in-laws, for them. But we just finished um, a townhouse in New York, which was uh, highlighted in Architectural Digest in September. We It's the third gut renovation that we did to the same townhouse for the same client <laughs> over the course of 30 years Yeah, because their lives changed and they, they wanted to kind of re, re sort of orient the way they lived, but they loved being in that location and we had a great relationship. So they would call us back and say, you know what, it's time. I mean, look, obviously these people had a lot of money too, but you know, they were able to say, we want a different lifestyle. Let's go back and rethink the entire house. And, you know, like I, we have another client who we we did a house in Sag Harbor, a house in New York City, the wife's uh, business, a house in Anguilla, an apartment for their son. And now we're working on an apartment for their daughter. And they're among my best friends. You know, yeah. one of the things my my wife pointed out years ago, she said, have you noticed if you look around that most of our closest friends are your former clients. 
Yeah. Because you develop such a close relationship, particularly on a residential project, that you know more about these people than anyone, you know, maybe including their shrink. So, you know, you become very close and, and that's, it's a very rich relationship. Yeah. It's very interesting to hear you say that. I, I interviewed Gene Cohn a, a couple months back. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things he said, um, one of the principles of KPF, um, he said the same thing, that relationships was the key to his success. That yeah. that understanding uh, that complexity of, of who people are, being able to listen to them, and truly authentically becoming friends with them, building relationships with them, uh, then leads to the architecture and to the, the greatness that, that comes following that. You know, we, we did a... Uh... I was just on a Zoom call before this with a repeat client of ours. We did a, a beach house, a big beach house for this family. Wonderful people, just fantastic people, really warm and, and, and genuine and great family life. And uh, and we had a great time working together. And then they just bought a penthouse in Manhattan, which we're now doing over. And, you know, it was so interesting. We were talking about... Uh, as as one always does, you know, the budget and what, what's going to fit within the budget and what's not going to fit within the budget. And, you know, I felt completely comfortable saying to them, look, you could cut this out, but I'm good. I'm never going to be comfortable with the fact that you're depriving yourself of this thing. And it's not that I want them to spend more money. But right. That's yep. not my motivation. Right. It's that I know them well enough that if if they give up this this one component of the project, it's going to affect their lives in a negative way, and you know it may seem great to to save you know a few thousand dollars now, but they're going to have this place for the the rest of their lives. You know they're they're in their sixties; they're not going anywhere else. And to not do what you what I know because I'm their friend right. that they really want. Uh, is a mistake, and but and I felt completely comfortable saying it. Yeah, so so uh, much of your success has come through this this idea of of relationships. I I, I can assume. I I want to ask you also in terms of because I'm thinking about architects who are listening, and they they look at your your work and they can see your work in the book that that it's called Skolnick Architecture and Design Partnership, Public and Private. You should go. You should go look at the book. The book is fantastic. It's beautiful, really well done. I want to talk about how it's structured in a, in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But but um, what I wanted to ask Lee is m- much of the the timeline that you're talking about. You're in Sag Harbor. You're in out in the Hamptons. The Hamptons from that point on has only grown <laughs> to the point where you have lots of lots of wealthy people living out there. Lots of clients, potential clients, right? That, that you can, can connect with and build relationships with. Lots of these projects came from seeds that were planted in Sag Harbor, right? And the relationships that you built with people in those areas. So people, architects who are listening, who uh, want to build a firm like yours and want to do the work like yours, how important is it to be in an, in an, to live and work in an area where those clients are? Can you build a firm like yours if you're not in a place like New York or San Francisco or L.A.? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, I don't know from experience because I haven't done that. Right. But um, I will say that there, there are other things that 
you should consider. It's not just where you live. It's also um, engaging with the community. So, I mean, uh, one of the things, because I, from the beginning, was doing public work, that is, you know, museums, which morphed into libraries and schools and things like that, you know, I became very uh, much a part of the, the cultural, educational, and not-for-profit uh, world in the community. And by the way, you know, your listeners should understand, I'm out in Sag Harbor uh, more than ever, mostly because of the pandemic right now. Right. Our office is in Manhattan, and, you know, our, our, our staff is working, has been working remotely um, because of COVID. But, um, you know, we're, we're firmly lodged in the culture of New York City, which is extremely rich. And I don't mean rich in, in money, yeah. but yeah. Rich culturally in, rich. Culturally and in depth and, and, uh, and breadth. But um, we also do a lot of um, pro bono work. And uh, for organization, charitable organizations, not-for-profits, um, educational organizations, social service, and, uh, and I serve on several boards. And that's something which your listeners should think about. You know, yeah. how do you engage with the community? You know, yes, it will have positive repercussions for you professionally and financially, but it's also the right thing to do. Yeah. Again, I, I, I like to think that I, I've never done anything purely on a mercenary basis. You know, I do it because I believe it's the right thing to do and it, it yields positive results, but it's not, I didn't do it for the positive result. That's just what came about as a result of doing it. And so I think, you know, there, there are people who just go on boards just so they can put, you know, these things on their resume and I, I often say on the boards where I serve, you know, I'm not here to warm a seat. I'm here to get, get things done. Yeah. And so I, I engage quite deeply with the, the work of the organization so that I can be of, of you know, real assistance. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but let's face it, you know, I do get to meet a lot of people who either become clients or refer me to clients or get my work published and out in the public eye, there's all sorts of uh, positive repercussions. Yeah. And, and certainly there's an advantage to architects who, who, you know, work and, and live in New York and, and San Francisco and, and places like that. There's but, a disadvantage too. Oh, oh certainly. Absolutely. There yeah. are 10,000 architects in New York. <laughs> extremely. Yeah. <laughs> extremely competitive. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what I want what I want to make because I, I hear this all the time. I can't succeed like that because I'm not there. But what you just said is if if you you have a community, right? We all have a community. Mm -hmm. We all have a place where we can serve. And so if you start to serve in that community, then people start to get to know you and you can start developing relationships with those people who are making decisions in your community, which can then lead to potentially can lead to projects which then you can grow from that project to the next project to the next project. And certainly there are many architects who are very successful doing fantastic architecture who don't live in New York and San Francisco. Yeah. And I'm jealous of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. We, well, you know, there's also something to be said for, for um, regionalism. Mm -hmm. You know, I look at certain architects 
who work in very specific locales and their work is is very uh, you know appropriate for that locale. Interestingly, when they reach a certain stature and they wind up uh, spreading their wings to other places, it's sometimes with mixed results. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know when you see their work in situ in the place where where they developed, it's you know spectacular. I, I love how diverse your work is. When you look through the book, uh, again, it's Skullnick Architecture and Design Partnership, uh, public and private. Um, we'll have a link to that on the show notes, uh, the link to, to buy that book. It is a beautiful book. It is one of those books that you're going to buy and you're going to look at and you're going to put it on your table and it's going to be on your shelf. You should be referencing it for, for the work that you do. It It's beautifully done. But it's interesting the way that you have um, designed this book. Uh, Lee, you mm-hmm. and your team, it's its two-sided, right? Much like your architecture firm. You're, <laughs> you're talking about public and private work. And so the, the, the design of the, the project or design of the book is done in a similar way. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, when, when we started to think about um, putting together our work into a, a, a monograph, you know, we came upon a conflict that we've always had. And that is that, you know, a lot of our work, fortunately for us, gets gets published or gets gets recognized um, by the public. And, you know, we would do these houses that would get uh, published in in Digest or other magazines, and people would come to me and say, you know, our our our, uh, our institutional clients would come to me and say, you know, I saw this house published in. Architectural Digest, it said Lee Skolnick. Is that the same Lee Skolnick? <laughs> and I said, yeah, of course. You know, What do you mean? They said, well, I, I thought you only did you know, institutional work, cultural work. And the same thing would happen on the other side where we would have a museum get some recognition somewhere and our residential clients would say, did you know that there's this architect, Lee Skolnick, who's doing these museums or libraries? And I said, wait a second. I always say, it's the same thing. You know, the process is the same. But when we started to do the book and I was talking to the publisher, I I confess that we had this this confusion that we always run into. And we sat there and, and we said, wait a second. That's how the book should be organized. So it's the same book. It's one book. It's one firm. It's one practice that has has produced work over the decades. But it has these two sides to it. So we worked with the the book designer to create a book that you can open from either side. <laughs> it so it has, has two it has two fronts. It has two fronts. It has no back. Yeah. And when you open it up, whichever way you start, you can continue. You don't have to turn the book over. You know, when you get to the middle of the book, it just becomes the other side. So it's very ingeniously done. It's a it's a little piece of architecture, really. Um, and then the other thing is. You know, I talk about how every project is is so unique and you have to dig down deep into what makes it tick. And, you know, long ago, I started talking about narrative architecture and how architecture can be, uh, you know, the the whole cliche now, but, but, you know, of storytelling through design. And so all of the projects in the book, I, I wrote the entire book 
And I picked 14 projects. I think there's, I forget, six public and eight private or vice versa. And each one is, it's not, I had a cantilever here or I, or I, you know, it's all about the story behind the project. Yeah. What was the essence? Who were the people? Why did it, how were we motivated and what inspired the design approach? So each one is a story. It's a series of 14 little stories. Yeah, I I I have a I have a digital copy of it. I'm looking forward to getting a physical copy of it because it's one of those things that you really need to have the physical copy um, to really to really uh, enjoy it. So I'm going to do that. Um, Lee, this has been a pleasure. This is uh, I really enjoyed speaking with you, learning about your origin story, learning about your firm. I'm looking forward to to seeing the book again. His name is Lee Skolnick. The architecture firm is Skolnick Architecture and Design Partnership. You can learn all about Lee and the firm at Skolnick.com. We will have a link to that on the show notes. We'll also have a link to the book, Skolnick Architecture and Design Partnership, public and private. Lee, I appreciate you for what you're doing, and I appreciate you for coming on the show today and sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. Oh, this was fun. It was a pleasure. If you like this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. Links to all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. And thank you to rcat.com and Studio Services Bookkeeping for their support of this episode. Entree Architect is proud to be a partner with the largest, most engaged AEC multimedia network on the planet, Gable Media. We are curating thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And check out Entree Architect Academy membership, ready to edit business resources for small firm architects, live monthly training, a supportive architect community, and Simple Systems, our new business system program developed for you small firm entrepreneur architects. It's all waiting for you at Entree Architect Academy membership. Come join me and hundreds of your Entree Architect peers. Visit entrearchitect.com slash join to enroll. entrearchitect.com slash join. Be well, my friends. Be healthy, happy, safe, and secure. Thank you for listening. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. 
in drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively that (laughs) then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us can we do this are we ready to do this are we prepared can we do it did we just decide a name (laughs) we did it guys one that came out of nowhere it came out of nowhere i liked it i saw it ready to turn your aspirations into reality Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.